0: volume two chapter sixteen of travels in the interior of africa by mungo park this librivox recording is in the public domain volume two chapter sixteen villages on the niger determines to go no farther eastward being in the manner that has been related compelled to leave sago i was conducted the same evening to a village about seven miles to the eastward with some of the inhabitants of which my guide was acquainted and by whom we were well received he was very friendly and communicative and spoke highly of the hospitality of his countrymen but withal told me that if jean was the place of my destination Which he seemed to have hitherto doubted, I had undertaken an enterprise of greater danger than probably I was apprised of, for for although the town of Jean was normally part of the King of Bambara's dominions, it was in fact, he said, a city of the Moors, the leading part of the inhabitants being Bushreens, and even the governor himself though appointed by Massong of the same sect. Thus was I in danger of falling a second time into the hands of men who would consider it not only justifiable, but meritus, to destroy me, and this reflection was aggravated by the circumstance that the danger increased as I advanced in my journey, for I learned that the places beyond Jean, were under the Moorish influence in a still greater degree than Jean itself, and Timbuktu, the great object of my search, altogether in possession of that savage and merciless people who allowed no Christian to live there. But I had now advanced too far to think of returning to the westward on such vague and uncertain information, and determined to proceed— and being accompanied by the guide i departed from the village on the morning of the twenty-fourth about eight o'clock we passed a large town called Kaba, situated in the midst of a beautiful and highly cultivated country bearing a greater resemblance to the centre of england than to what i should have supposed had been the middle of africa The people were everywhere employed in collecting the fruit of shea trees, from which they prepare the vegetable butter mentioned in former parts of this work. These trees grow in great abundance over this part of Bambara. They are not planted by the natives, but are found growing naturally in the woods, and in clearing woodland for cultivation every tree is cut down but the shea. The tree itself very much resembles the American oak, and the fruit, from the kernel of which, being first dried in the sun, the butter is prepared by boiling the kernel in water, has somewhat the appearance of a Spanish olive. The kernel is enveloped in a sweet pulp, under a thin green rind, and the butter produced from it besides the advantage of its keeping the whole year without salt, is whiter, firmer, and to my palate, of a richer flavor than the best butter I ever tasted made from cow's milk. The growth and preparation of this commodity seemed to be among the first objects of African industry in this and the neighboring states, and it constitutes a main article of their inland commerce we passed in the course of the day a great many villages inhabited chiefly by fishermen and in the evening about five o'clock arrived at san sanding a very large town containing as i was told from eight to ten thousand inhabitants this place is much resorted to by the moors who bring salt from Beru and beads and coral from the Mediterranean, to exchange here for gold and cotton cloth. This cloth they sell to great advantage in Beru and other Moorish countries, where, on account of the want of rain, no cotton is cultivated. I desired my guide to conduct me to the house in which we were to lodge, by the most private way possible. We accordingly rode along between the town and the river, passing by a creek or harbor, in which I observed twenty large canoes, most of them fully loaded, and covered with mats to prevent the rain from injuring the goods. As we proceeded, three other canoes arrived, two with passengers and one with goods. I was happy to find that all the Negro inhabitants took me for a moor, under which character I should probably have passed unmolested, had not a moor, who was sitting by the riverside, discovered the mistake, and, setting up a loud exclamation, brought together a number of his countrymen." When I arrived at the house of County Mamidi, the duty of the town, I was surrounded with hundreds of people speaking a variety of different dialects, all equally intelligible to me. At length, by the assistance of my guide, who acted as interpreter, I understood that one of the spectators pretended to have seen me at one place and another at some other place, and a Moorish woman absolutely swore that she had kept my house three years at Galam, on the River Senegal. It was plain that they mistook me for some other person, and I desired two of the most confident to point towards the place where they had seen me. They pointed due south, hence I think it probable that they came from Cape Coast, where they might have seen many white men. Their language was different from any I had yet heard. The Moors now assembled in great number, with their usual arrogance compelling the Negroes to stand at a distance. They immediately began to question me concerning my religion. But finding that I was not master of Arabic, they sent for two men, whom they call E or jews in hopes that they might be able to converse with me these jews in dress and appearance very much resemble the arabs but though they so far conform to the religion of mohammed as to recite in public prayers from the koran they are but little respected by the negroes and even the moors themselves allowed that though i was a christian It was a better man than a Jew. They however insisted that, like the Jews, I must conform so far as to repeat the Mohammedan prayers, and when I attempted to waive the subject by telling them that I could not speak Arabic, one of them, a Sharif from Tuat, in the great desert "'started up and swore by the Prophet "'that if I refused to go to the mosque, "'he would be one that would assist in carrying me thither, "'and there is no doubt "'that this threat would have been immediately executed "'had not my landlord interposed on my behalf. "'He told them that I was the king's stranger, "'and he could not see me ill-treated.' whilst i was under his protection he therefore advised them to let me alone for the night assuring them that in the morning i should be sent about my business this somehow appeased their clamour but they compelled me to ascend a high seat by the door of the mosque in order that everybody might see me for the people had assembled in such numbers as to be quite ungovernable climbing upon the houses and squeezing each other like the spectators at an execution. Upon this seat I remained until sunset, when I was conducted into a neat little hut, with a small court before it, the door of which Count Mamadi shut, to prevent any person from disturbing me, but this precaution could not exclude the Moors, They climbed over the top of the mud wall and came in crowds into the court. In order, they said, to see me perform my evening devotions and eat eggs. The former of these ceremonies I did not think proper to comply with, but I told them that I had no objection to eat eggs, provided they would bring me eggs to eat. My landlord immediately brought me seven hen's eggs, and was much surprised to find that I could not eat them raw, for it seemed to be a prevalent opinion among the inhabitants of the interior that Europeans subsist almost entirely on this diet. When I had succeeded in persuading my landlord that this opinion was without foundation, and that I would gladly partake of any victuals which he might think proper to send me, HE ORDERED A SHEEP TO BE KILLED, AND PART OF IT TO BE DRESSED FOR MY SUPPER. ABOUT MIDNIGHT, WHEN THE MOORS HAD LEFT ME, HE PAID ME A VISIT, AND WITH MUCH EARNESTNESS DESIRED ME TO WRITE HIM A SAFI. IF A MOOR'S SAFI IS GOOD, SAID THE HOSPITABLE OLD MAN, A WHITE MAN'S MUST NEEDS BE BETTER. I readily FURNISHED HIM WITH ONE possessed of all the virtues I could concentrate, for it contained the Lord's Prayer. The pen with which it was written was made of a reed, a little charcoal and gum-water made very tarble ink, and a thin board answered the purpose of paper. July 25th, early in the morning, before the moors were assembled, I departed from Sanding and slept the ensuing night at a small town called Sibili, from whence on the day following I reached Nyera, a large town at some distance from the river, where I halted the 27th, to have my clothes washed and to recruit my horse. The duty there had a very commodious house, a flat roofed and two stories high, he showed me some gunpowder of his own manufacturing, and pointed out, as a great curiosity, a little brown monkey that was tied to a stake by the door, telling me that it came from a far distant country called Kong. July 28th, I departed from Niara and reached Niamey about noon. This town is inhabited chiefly by Fula's, from the kingdom of massina the duty i know not why would not receive me but civilly sent his son on horseback to conduct me to modabu which he assured me was at no great distance we rode nearly in a direct line through the woods but in general went forwards with great circumspection i observed that my guide frequently stopped and looked under the bushes On inquiring the reason of this caution, he told me that lions were very numerous in that part of the country, and frequently attacked people traveling through the woods. While he was speaking, my horse started, and, looking round, I observed a large animal of the camel-leopard kind standing at a little distance. The neck and forelegs were very long, The head was furnished with two short black horns, turning backwards. The tail, which reached down to the ham joint, had a tuft of hair at the end. The animal was of a mouse color, and it trotted away from us in a very sluggish manner, moving its head from side to side to see if we were pursuing it. Shortly after this, as we were crossing a large open plain, where there were a few scattered bushes, my guide, who was a little way before me, wheeled his horse round in a moment, calling out something in the Fula language which I did not understand. I inquired in Mandingo what he meant. Wara Billy Billy, a very large lion, said he, and made signs for me to ride away. But my horse was too much fatigued, so we rode slowly past the bush from which the animal had given us the alarm. Not seeing anything myself, however, I thought my guide had been mistaken, when the Fula suddenly put his hand to his mouth, exclaiming, "'Supa al-ali! God preserve us!' And, to my great surprise, I then perceived a large red lion at a short distance from the bush, with his head couched between his forepaws. I expected he would instantly spring upon me, and instinctively pulled my feet from my stirrups to throw myself on the ground, that my horse might become the victim rather than myself. But it is probable the lion was not hungry, for he quietly suffered us to pass, though we were fairly within his reach. My eyes were so riveted upon the sovereign of the beasts that I found it impossible to remove them until we were at a considerable distance. We now took a circuitous route through some swampy ground to avoid any more of these disagreeable encounters. At sunset we arrived at Modibu, a delightful village on the banks of the Niger, commanding a view of the river for many miles both to the east and west the small green islands the peaceful retreat of some industrious Fulas, whose cattle are here secure from the depredations of wild beasts and the majestic breadth of the river which is here much larger than at sago render the situation one of the most enchanting in the world here are caught great plenty of fish by means of long cotton nets, which the natives make themselves, and use nearly in the same manner as nets are used in Europe. I observed the head of a crocodile lying upon one of the houses, which they told me had been killed by the shepherds in a swamp near the town. These animals are not uncommon in the Niger, but I believe they are not oftentimes found dangerous they are of little account to the traveller when compared with the amazing swarms of mosquitoes which rise from the swamps and creeks in such numbers as to harass even the most torpid of the natives and as my clothes were now almost worn to rags i was but ill-prepared to resist their attacks i usually passed the night without shutting my eyes walking backwards and forwards fanning myself with my hat their stings raised numerous blisters on my legs and arms which together with the want of rest made me very feverish and uneasy july twenty ninth early in the morning my landlord observing that i was sickly hurried me away sending a servant with me as a guide to key but though i was little able to walk My horse was still less able to carry me, and about six miles to the east of Modibu, in crossing some rough clayey ground, he fell, and the united strength of the guide and myself could not place him again upon his legs. I sat down for some time beside this worn-out associate of my adventures, but finding him still unable to rise, I took off the saddle and bridle and placed a quantity of grass before him. I surveyed the poor animal, as he lay panting on the ground, with sympathetic emotion, for I could not suppress the sad apprehension that I should myself, in a short time, lie down and perish in the same manner, of fatigue and hunger. With this foreboding I left my poor horse, and with great reluctance followed my guide on foot, along the bank of the river until about noon, when we reached Key, which I found to be nothing more than a small fishing village. The duty, assured the old man, who was sitting by the gate, received me very coolly, and when I informed him of my situation and begged his protection, told me with great indifference that he paid very little attention to fine speeches, and that i should not enter his house my guide remonstrated in my favour but to no purpose for the duty remained inflexible in his determination i knew not where to rest my wearied limbs but was happily relieved by a fishing canoe belonging to Scylla, which was at that moment coming down the river the duty waved to the fishermen to come nearer and desired him to take charge of me as far as Morzen. The fisherman, after some hesitation, consented to carry me, and I embarked in the canoe in company with the fisherman, his wife, and a boy. The negro who had conducted me from Motibu now left me. I requested him to look to my horse on his return, and take care of him if he was still alive, which he promised to do. Departing from Key, we proceeded about a mile down the river. When the fisherman paddled the canoe to the bank and desired me to jump out, having tied the canoe to a stake, he stripped off his clothes and dived for such a length of time that I thought he had actually drowned himself and was surprised to see his wife behave with so much indifference upon the occasion. But my fears were over when he raised up his head astern of the canoe and called for a rope. With this rope he dived a second time, and then got into the canoe, and ordered the boy to assist him in pulling. At length they brought up a large basket, about ten feet in diameter, containing two fine fish, which the fisherman, after returning the basket into the water, immediately carried ashore and hid in the grass. We then went a little farther down and took up another basket, in which was one fish. The fisherman now left us to carry his prizes to some neighboring market, and the woman and boy proceeded with me in the canoe down the river." About four o'clock we arrived at Morzen, a fishing town on the northern bank, from whence I was conveyed across the river to Silla, a large town where I remained until it was quite dark, under a tree, surrounded by hundreds of people. With a great deal of entreaty, the duty allowed me to come into his balloon, to avoid the rain, but the place was very damp, and I had a small paroxysm of fever during the night. Worn down by sickness, exhausted with hunger and fatigue, half naked, and without any article of value by which I might procure provisions, clothes, or lodging, I began to reflect seriously on my situation. I was now convinced by painful experience, that the obstacles to my farther progress were unsurmountable. The tropical rains were already set in with all their violence. The rice grounds and swamps were everywhere overflowed, and in a few days more, travelling of every kind, unless by water, would be completely obstructed. The cowries which remained of the king of Bambera's present were not sufficient to enable me to hire a canoe for any great distance, and I had but little hopes of sub-existing by charity in a country where the Moors had such influence. But above all, I perceived that I was advancing more and more within the power of those merciless fanatics, and from my reception both at Sago and San Sanding, I was apprehensive that attempting to reach even jenny unless under the protection of some men of consequence amongst them which i had no means of obtaining i should sacrifice my life to no purpose for my discoveries would perish with me the prospect either way was gloomy in returning to the gambia A journey on foot of many hundred miles presented itself to my contemplation, through regions and countries unknown. Nevertheless, this seemed to be the only alternative, for I saw inevitable destruction in attempting to proceed to the eastward. With this conviction on my mind, I hope my readers will acknowledge that I did right in going no farther. Having thus brought my mind, after much doubt and perplexity, to a determination to return westward, I thought it incumbent on me, before I left Silla, to collect from the Moorish and Negro traders all the information I could concerning the farther course of the Niger eastward, and the situation and extent of the kingdoms in its vicinity, and the following few notices I receive from such various quarters as induce me to think they are authentic. Two short days' journey to the eastward of Silla is the town of Jene, which is situated on a small island in the river, and is said to contain a great number of inhabitants than Sago itself, or any other town in Bambara. At the distance of two days more, the river spreads into A considerable lake called Dibby or the Dark Lake, concerning the extent of which all the information I could obtain was that in crossing it from west to east, the canoes lose sight of land one whole day. From this lake, the water issues in many different streams, which terminate in two large branches, one whereof flows towards the northeast, and the other to the east but these branches join at Cabra, which is one day's journey to the southward of Timbuktu, and the port or shipping place of that city. The tract of land which the two streams encircle is called Jinbala, and is inhabited by Negroes, and the whole distance by land from Jenne to Timbuktu is twelve days' journey. From Cabra, at the distance of eleven days' journey down the stream, the river passes to the southward of Housa, which is two days' journey distant from the river. Of the farther progress of this great river and its final exit, all the natives with whom I conversed seem to be entirely ignorant. Their commercial pursuits seldom induce them to travel farther than the cities of Timbuktu and Housa, and, as the sole object of these journeys is the acquirement of wealth, they pay little attention to the course of rivers or the geography of countries. It is, however, highly probable that the Niger affords a safe and easy communication between very remote nations. All my informants agreed that many of the Negro merchants who arrive at Timbuktu and Hausa from eastward speak a different language from that of Bambara or any other kingdom with which they are acquainted. But even these merchants, it would seem, are ignorant of the termination of the river, for such of them as can speak Arabic describe the amazing length of its course in very general terms, saying only that they believe it runs to the world's end. The names of many kingdoms to the eastward of Hosa are familiar to the inhabitants of Bambara. I was shown quivers and arrows of very curious workmanship, which I was informed came from the kingdom of Kassina. On the north bank of the Niger, at short distance from Silla, is the kingdom of Massina, which is inhabited by Fulas. They employed themselves there as in other places, chiefly in pasturage, and pay an annual tribute to the king of Bambara for the lands which they occupy. To the northeast of Messina is situated the kingdom of Timbuktu, the great object of European research, the capital of this kingdom being one of the principal marts for that extensive commerce which the Moors carry on with the Negroes, The hopes of acquiring wealth in this pursuit and zeal for propagating their religion have filled this extensive city with Moors and Mohammedan converts. The king himself and all the chief officers of state are Moors, and they are said to be more severe and intolerant in their principles than any other of the Moorish tribes in this part of Africa. I was informed by a venerable old negro that when he first visited Timbuktu, he took up his lodgings at a sort of public inn, the landlord of which, when he conducted him into his hut, spread a mat on the floor and laid a rope upon it, saying, If you are a Muslim, you are my friend. Sit down. But if you are a kafir, you are my slave." and with this rope I will lead you to market. The present king of Timbuktu is named Abu Abrahima. He is reported to possess immense riches. His wives and concubines are said to be clothed in silk, and the chief officers of state live in considerable splendor. The whole expense of his government is defrayed, as I was told, by a tax upon merchandise, which is collected at the gates of the city. The city of Hausa, the capital of a large kingdom of the same name, situated to the eastward of Timbuktu, is another great mart for Moorish commerce. I conversed with many merchants who had visited that city, and they all agreed that it is larger and more populous than Timbuktu." The trade, police, and government are nearly the same in both, but in Hossa the Negroes are in greater proportion to the Moors and have some share in the government. Concerning the small kingdom of Jinbala, I was not able to collect much information. The soil is said to be remarkably fertile, and the whole country so full of creeks and swamps, that the Moors have hitherto been baffled in every attempt to subdue it. The inhabitants are Negroes, and some of them are said to live in considerable affluence, particularly those near the capital, which is a resting place for such merchants as transport goods from Timbuktu to the western parts of Africa." To the southward of Jinbala is situated the Negro kingdom of Gato, which is said to be of great extent. It was formerly divided into a number of petty states, which were governed by their own chiefs, but their private quarrels invited invasion from the neighboring kingdoms. At length, a politic chief by the name of Musi had addressed enough to make them unite in hostilities against Bambara, and on this occasion he was unanimously chosen general, the different chiefs consenting for a time to act under his command. Musi immediately despatched a fleet of canoes, loaded with provisions, from the banks of the Lake Dibi up the Niger towards Geni, and with the whole of his army pushed forwards into Bambara. He arrived on the bank of the Niger opposite to Jeni, before the townspeople had the smallest intimation of his approach. His fleet of canoes joined him the same day, and having landed the provisions, he embarked part of his army and in the night took Jeni by storm. This event so terrified the king of Bambara that he sent messengers to sue for peace, and in order to obtain it, consented to deliver to Masi a certain number of slaves every year, and return everything that had been taken from the inhabitants of Gato. Masi, thus triumphant, returned to Gato, where he was declared king, and the capital of the country is called by his name. On the west of Gato is the kingdom of Baidu, which was conquered by the present king of Bambara about seven years ago, and has continued tributary to him ever since. West of Baidu is Mania, the inhabitants of which, according to the best information I was able to collect, are cruel and ferocious, carrying their resentment towards their enemies so far as never to give quarter, and even to indulge themselves with unnatural and disgusting banquets of human flesh. End of Volume 2, Chapter 16 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.